church, we are in Acts 21, and we've been moving towards Paul arriving in Jerusalem. We even heard last week that this was going to be an intense moment for him to enter this tinderbox of a city and to face certain persecution there. And so he finally arrives, and we're going to read about that in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that, had got, that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands uh, there are among the Jews who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads." Thus all will know that there is nothing in what has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, offspring present, the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we delve into this uh, dense passage about the Old Testament custom and their relation to Jesus and the gospel within the church, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and we this morning would begin to discern what is true and essential to our faith that we live and stand by, and what is our preference that we like to do, but that we would gladly give up for the sake of another believer. It's gonna take your spirit to show us the difference, and so we pray that you will give us that wisdom, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, a friend recently reminded me that when we are ordained in this denomination, the PCA, Any elder, pastor, or ruling elder must stand and before the church, as I've done before you, make ordination vows. One of the vows that we've taken from the book of church order is to maintain the truths of the gospel and the peace and the purity and the unity of the church, which means you have the truths and the purity in one hand and you have the peace and unity in the other hand. The truth and the purity of the church, of course, are our essential, God-breathed, bedrock, life-giving doctrines, and those who forsake those doctrines make shipwreck of their faith. If you make a vow to be an elder here, and somebody comes in our midst, and they mess with an essential doctrine, the resurrection of Christ, or everlasting life, or the exclusivity of the gospel, and you want to teach that here, come at me, bro, we ain't doing that, that will not happen in this place. That's what we stand to, that's what we make a vow for. And in the other hands, we vow for the peace and the unity 
of the church, which is her love and her devotion to one another. Paul will go so far as to say, you can know all doctrine, you can know all theology, you can know ancient church history, you can know what the reformers have written, you could memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith, but if you don't have love and if you don't care for another person, I am nothing. I'm nothing. You got somebody who comes in here with a PhD and New Testament scholarship and they want to lead a growth group, but the only problem is they're a jerk. We can't use you. You're nothing, Paul says. We can't use that kind of ministry here because we hold both to the truth and to the unity and purity of the church and we stand by those things. Our passage this morning is going to test those ordination vows. Let me set the scene for us a little bit because we know we've heard that all the while Paul is going to face hardship when he gets to Jerusalem. So we're a little bit surprised that it's this great welcoming when he gets there. It's a happy reception. Verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. And then in verses 18 and 19, Paul goes on to tell them everything that's happened on the mission field, what God is doing. And it says, verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. And that's in the the imperfect tense, meaning they continued to, they went on glorifying, praising, worshiping God. Now, I would love to have been a fly on the wall of that worship service because in attendance in this room, we're told James is there. This is not James the apostle. We lost him to martyrdom earlier in the book. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus who never believed in Jesus while he was alive. In fact, all of his brothers mocked him, teased him. They didn't believe him. They saw Jesus die a criminal death and they saw all his friends abandon him. And now James has come to faith and he's hearing this report that the name of Jesus is being praised and magnified from one end of the Roman Empire all the way to the other. That's a worship service. And I wish we could stay there and I wish we could dwell there, but verse 20b starts heading in a delicate direction. It's like a scratch in the record of this worship party. Now, I think I've told you this before, but my wife, when she has to bring up something delicate with me, she's got this great way of doing it where she'll lead by saying, hey, I got to tell you something that's going to make you furious. So then I start guessing, what are the things that make me furious? You spent money. You got a cat, your family's coming over. Like, what are, what are we talking about here? And then Julie was like, no, I crashed the car. And it's like, I thought you got a cat. I mean, this is okay. Don't scare me like that. And it's this brilliant way to kind of lead me into something that's hard. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Like, we had this beautiful worship service. Everything seems to be wonderful among the folks. And then in verse 20, the Jerusalem leadership has to bring up something delicate They've heard from the people in Jerusalem that Paul is making Jews on the mission field leave their Jewishness, and that's a a no-go for them. That's a big deal for them. So this is a little dense, what they're getting into, and unless you were raised in first century Judea, it's going to be hard to have access to what the big deal was, but we're just going to very briefly in a few minutes understand why was this such a big deal? Why would the Jerusalem leadership even ask Paul to do a ritual cleansing, and why would Paul even agree to that if that's not really a part of the gospel? Well, the issue is this. 
We know, according to scripture, God created the world. He made the world to be in perfect, happy communion and fellowship with him. That was his design. That will be his design for all time. But humanity resisted God, rejected God. They, they rebelled against him and ran from him and broke that happy fellowship. And as soon as we did, God began this plan of redemption for us. Now, everything I just described actually happens in the first three pages of our Bibles. <laughs> that's, a, that's an action-packed first three pages. But pages four to 800 are a bit of a surprise. I would have thought if God was delivering salvation in Genesis chapter four, we would read that there was a baby born in a manger named Jesus. Like we, we need Jesus. But that's not what God does in his providence. Instead, he sets about this plan of redemption that is centered on the people of Israel who will become a shining light, a city on the hill for the nations that through Israel, the nations might learn who God is and be ready for the coming of Jesus. And so God gives Israel these beautiful things. He gives her his law. He gives them a sacrificial system. He gives them the temple, which is his presence. He gives them circumcision, which is a sign that they belong to this family. And each of these things that he gives the Jewish people in the Old Testament and any Gentile who believed are precious in their own right. They're a way to glorify God. But they also have a big job to do. They're always and forever pointing forward to say, someone is coming, someone is coming. The lamb is slain, someone is coming. God is present in the temple, someone is coming. You cannot fulfill the law, someone is coming. It is all pointing forward. So a massive question in the New Testament and New Testament scholarship is, What happens to all this Old Testament preparation when the goal of the preparation has arrived in the person of Jesus? I was reading a dense theological work this week that describes it perfectly. The revelation of the gospel does not negate the significance of that which precedes it. Rather, it represents an eschatological realization that renders its antecedents obsolete. Amen, church? That'll preach, right? Well, unless you want me to talk like that for the next 15 minutes, let me oversimplify things by saying, you could think about this Old Testament preparation, the law and the sacrifice systems and the temple and the ritual cleansing. All of that is the scaffolding for God's glory which is leading to the building, which is happening at the center, which is God's victory in Christ. Jesus died and resurrected. The scaffolding gets us ready for that. It prepares for that. But the building itself is Jesus himself, and that is the one whom we celebrate. So the constant issue between Jews and Gentiles in our New Testament is that once the structure is standing, Jesus and him risen from the dead, what do we do with all this scaffolding? What do you tell a Jewish Christian and what do you tell a Gentile Christian? If a Jew has come to faith and they have always ever only practiced Jewish customs, Jewish diet, Jewish ritual cleansing, when they come to faith, are you gonna make them abandon everything they have ever done so that they will prove that they are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation? Do they have to become un-Jewish to become a Christian? 
Or if a Gentile who never did any of those things and never experienced that kind of tradition, if they come to faith, are you then going to ask a Gentile believer that they now have to practice all of those things, in essence, become a Jew so that they can also become a Christian? That's an extremely delicate issue that means everything for the unity of the church. And the church answered that question in the book of Acts by saying, Christ is at the center. He alone is our salvation. And we're never going to ask a Gentile Christian to become a Jew. And we're never going to ask a Jewish Christian to become a Gentile, which is profound. And it clues us to the fact that there is something essential to the gospel that no one can fudge on. And then there's something preferential around the gospel that's going to look different in different times and places. Like you can take the seed of the gospel, the exclusive message of Jesus, and you can plant it in different times and places and cultures and languages. And it's amazing how different, how beautiful, how imaginative that same gospel can become. Have you visited churches in other cultures in the States? Have you visited churches internationally in other places? And you've seen, this is totally different. They're doing something we don't do here. The worship looks different. The sermon sounds different. The people are asking different questions than we are. It's the same gospel, but it looks different in every place it grows up. That's the beauty of the gospel, but it creates this tension. And word on the street is in Jerusalem that Paul is not doing what we agreed to. When he's on the mission field, he's doing something that we said we shouldn't do. And he's telling Jews, hey, leave your Judaism so that you can accept Christ fully. And when Jews in Jerusalem hear that, believers, they are deeply, deeply offended and concerned. So the leadership has a suggestion. Here's what we're going to do. Here's something that could help uh, tie that rift between you. Paul, if you will participate in something Jewish, like a ritual cleansing, and you'll bring other people with you, then, verse 24, you yourself also will show that you live in observance to the law. In other words, Paul's not submitting himself under the law. We just heard in Galatians, Paul says Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but he's showing that a Jewish person can voluntarily practice their Judaism within the Christian faith. I know this is (laughs) extremely dense to understand. Paul is basically saying, look, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have chosen to do this. You're asking me to take these men and do this ritual cleansing. This wasn't my idea but I got four Christian brothers who are Jews and they know Jesus alone saves them. And they're saying we wanna go through with this vow and this ritual cleansing and that's gonna be part of our worship. Who am I to stop them? And to show unity, why don't I join them and we will all go do this together and I will show the Jerusalem church this is acceptable to God too. We can do it in this way as well. When Paul agrees to do that, we are actually witnessing a miracle. It is a miracle for a believer to give up their preference and do what another believer wants to do. That's remarkable. That's happening in the first century and that is something we are fast losing in the 21st century. The church did what Book of Church Order 21.5 says, maintain the truths of the gospel and the peace and the purity and the unity of the church. 
There are things about our faith that are truths, and there are things about our faith that are merely preferences, and a healthy, humble church family is on a lifelong journey of learning how to concede preferences without compromising truths. Did you hear that, church? A healthy church is on this lifelong journey of saying, what is essential? What is at the center? What will we not budge on? And then what is merely a preference, the way I want to do things and like to do things and prefer to do things, that I would give up for the sake of another person? A healthy church is learning the difference between the two and by contrast, a sickly, proud, insecure church can't tell the difference between a preference and a truth and they end up dying on hills that just don't matter. They die, they give themselves, they argue their heart out for things that just don't matter. It's like you could zoom in on this Christian that is swinging with all her might for the thing she so staunchly believes and she dies on that hill of her belief and then as you pan out from that hill of politics or cultural preferences or COVID protocol, you see that there's actually a bunch of little molehills like that and as the camera pans out, you see that in the center of all of that, there is this gigantic mountain of Christ and him crucified. And on that mountain is the hall of faith, those great witnesses from Hebrews chapter 11. And they are looking down from the precipice of Christ all the way to who you voted for at the last election and what you died over. And they say, brother, sister, there is so much more at stake. Don't die on that hill. That's not a hill to die on. Well, Paul learns that some of his Christian brethren are hurt because they heard some things about him that aren't actually true about him and they want him to prove something that he doesn't need to prove. And so he's in a delicate situation where he or us in a similar situation could respond with one or two extremes. I know there's truth. I know there's preferences. There's a truth extreme, and then there's a preference extreme, and we could fall in either of those just as Paul could have fallen in either of those. You've got the truth extreme, and that is where I myself am going to fall 99 out of 100 times. The sin you will see in your pastor is the truth extreme, because I'm a black and white kind of guy. I mean, something's right or it's wrong. It's never right or wise for me and wrong and unwise for you. And if somebody approached me and said, hey, yeah, so anyway, there's a group of us that want to add something to worship. It's like this ritual cleansing and it would mean a bunch to us if you would also do it with us. And what do you think? Are you kidding me? We're not talking about Jesus and him crucified. You're talking about your preference for ritual washing. Of course I don't want to do that. You could take a hike. I'm not interested in adding that. And in my self-righteous so-called stand for truth, I will probably needlessly and selfishly lose a precious brother or sister. 
And what's darker is, I might not care. Who wants to worship with a bunch of sniveling, cowardly, ritual washers? And Jesus says, I do. (laughs) I do. She's mine. He's mine. I've redeemed them. They're part of this body. I want them here. That's the truth extreme. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. But on the other hand, there is the preference extreme. And this will be the people pleaser among us. This is the person desperate not to rock the boat. This is the person who's going to try to see what is everybody else already doing and believing and practicing. And then let's see if we can't get Jesus to fit what we are already doing. And Paul could have made a mountain out of this suggestion. He could have said, yeah, I'll do the ritual cleansing and I'll actually ask other people to do the ritual cleansing and we'll adopt uh, globally within the church the ritual cleansing and he would be open to any and all suggestions to tweak the faith, to make it attractive to everybody who's interested in it. And in a race to pander for everybody's preferences, as so sadly happens in the church today, Christ will get smaller and my preferences will get larger and when I show up here, I forget what we're doing. Am I here to worship him or am I here to worship you because we spend all our time talking about what we prefer? So this is dangerous ground. This is not easy stuff. This is a lifelong journey. We will not easily learn what it means to hold fast to what is true and to give up, to turn over to, to lend ourselves to what is merely a preference. Which is why I say a healthy, humble church is on this lifelong journey of learning how do I concede these preferences and how do I never compromise on what is true? When I think about our local church, when I think about Cola Prez, I hope and I pray we are standing on this truth that we will always be a church that holds to the Apostles' Creed and we do not bend on that. I pray that that won't be our challenge. Truth won't be our challenge. But I wonder in our divisive culture if again and again we will come back to the battle of preferences. Politics are important, they're really important, but they are not ultimate. Have I hurt a fellow believer in the way I have talked about my political position? Understanding and holding to biblical sexuality and gender is important, but the way we do it is not always kind or helpful. Am I learning to speak about gender and sexuality in a way that is life-giving even if we disagree? Racial and cultural preferences are important. They're who we are. God has designed us that way, but they are not ultimate. When I show up in a church space, do we always do things my way? Or are we starting to learn how to represent the gifts and abilities and preferences of what I hope will become a more and more diverse body of Christ? What is essential and what is non-essential? When I lock horns with a believer, 
and we vehemently disagree about any or all the above, can that person walk away from that disagreement and say, I might even disagree more with that person than when we first started talking about this, but today I have experienced the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 1. Now church, I tell you that our days are short here and that the time is evil and that the enemy is having a field day right now because he has found and exploited our Achilles heel that we will argue about anything. You can divide a church over tuition loan forgiveness. They'll take their eyes off of Jesus in a snap and go after each other over these things. And so watching Paul and James snaps us back to what is really ultimate and that is the worldwide celebration of Jesus. And this is good timing because this is the last we'll hear about James. The curtain closes on James. This is his last mention in the Bible. He's already written written the book of James. You can read that later. That's done, that's written. We see James here, we never see him again. And church history tells us that this same James will face martyrdom when he is thrown from the temple and beaten to death for his faith. So understand this man in the spirit, honoring God with this conviction of his ordination vow, a man who is so gentle that he can hear these brothers or sisters say, this is hurting our faith. And he's so gentle that he can kind of confront Paul and say, this is how you ought to love other people. And he's so gentle that he can continue to to work for the unity of the church is the same man that God gave a lion's resolve to stare death by martyrdom in the face and face it in Jesus' name. Which means it is possible to care for the church without jeopardizing courage for Christ. Do not confuse the two. I can care for the church, for my brother and sister in Christ, And that does not in any way impinge on being courageous for Jesus at this cultural moment. James is now in Jesus' presence. He's there. And when you get there, and when I get there, it's all essentials. It's no preferences. Because it's Jesus himself in all his bright and majestic glory, and we have found what our hearts and souls have so long desired. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, make it so. Take our eyes off of ourselves. Take our eyes off of our preference and the way we like to do things and the way we think things ought to be done and the way we think other people ought to participate with us and instead infuse us with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ 
that we might be courageous with what is true and we might be utterly compassionate, joyous, happy to give up our rights for the sake of another. We pray and we plead in Jesus' name, amen.